Hello builders. Welcome to the Builders Club Startup Founders podcast. A podcast for founders to upskill themselves and understand the founder mindset. Every week, we sit with the best minds in the startup ecosystem and understand what it takes to start, run and scale businesses. This podcast is from one of our recordings of our water cooler conversations. A weekly community AMA where we get established entrepreneurs to discuss their strategies and their mindset in front of our community members. So sit back, relax and let's start with the episode. Uh so first of all uh, guys welcome to the 49th edition of uh, of the water cooler conversation i guess this is this is again we are we are reaching the half century after this and and in the 49th episode we have got someone very very special uh and uh, the reason why i say uh, you know our guest is special is because he has he's not just a founder he has been an investor in the vc side as well as well as 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 a as uh, you know wore hats as a consultant as well so he has kind of wore all the different uh, aspirational hats that you usually hear of uh, and now he is here to share his learnings and and to share his uh, his story with with the builders club uh, so we'll welcome ruchin uh, ruchin kulkarni is the co-founder of topline uh topline is basically one of those companies who champions the 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 concept of product led growth for saas companies and helps them in generating revenue by converting their freemium users into paid ones um topline very recently raised uh, you know actually topline was a part of the sequoia search program and then very recently have raised their latest round of 15 million dollars uh with tiger global and sequoia at the helm and other angels as well ruchin himself has worked in mckinsey he's an iit madras grad if i'm not wrong mm-hmm. um he he's he he started off with goldman sachs as an intern then he got into mckinsey then he got into sequoia where he was uh, he, he was a part of the investment teams and now he is a founder himself it's kind of a different journey you know where a, a, an investor is turning into uh, a founder and that's a very interesting uh, change of pace and we'd love to know a little bit more about that as well but first of all welcome ruchin to the builders club no thank you uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, appreciate you uh, taking out the time and everyone else on the uh, on the live call as well thank you for taking out time on a, what seems to be a bright saturday morning yeah. Uh, so i am sure there's there's better things to do than listen to me uh walking around outside but i appreciate you guys taking out the time you know for for entrepreneurs this is what they live for you know these are the kind of conversations that actually make the day of an entrepreneur and you being in bangalore you would understand that nowadays the coffee conversations have completely converted into startup conversations in every in every coffee shop that you're there in in bangalore but uh, ruchin we we'll usually we usually start off the conversation with a little bit you know knowing a little bit about yourself what you have been doing how has your professional journey been and you know the different stages that you have been and what led you here so we can probably kick it off with that yeah sure uh, happy to sort of walk you through uh what my last few years have been like uh, so as you said uh, prior to sort of starting topline uh, with my co-founders uh, i was a vc at sequoia 
where I largely sort of invested in late stage SaaS companies, right? So uh, the SaaS ecosystem was just booming uh, and uh, companies were sort of uh, moving from sort of seed, series A, series B stage to real growth stage, right? Uh, you can think the likes of Freshworks or Charge B and so on. Uh, and uh, that really created the need for growth stage capital in uh, the Indian SaaS ecosystem. And uh, I was frankly lucky to have found myself in Sequoia where, hey, there's this growth stage team that's emerging uh, for SaaS. And I just happened to be one of the folks uh, who happened to be lucky enough at the door. Uh, so to be honest, my life has largely been a series of lucky events, to be honest. Like, uh, that's kind of uh, uh, what it has been. So started in uh, uh, Bangalore, uh, 04, I moved here. I think that was the pivotal point in my life. Um, to be honest, I was a kid, I was like uh, nine years old, probably in 04. Uh, but moved to Bangalore and that kind of shifted everything because uh, Bangalore was the land of information technology. Uh, but it was soon becoming the land of startups as well. Uh, and growing up in the areas like Kormangla, et cetera, uh, walking down those roads, going to the cricket grounds or whatever, you would see uh, Flipkart on one end, eventually later phone pay, you'd see all of your e-commerce giants and so on. Uh, and that kind of becomes normalized to you, right? So you think of uh, life as, uh, hey, folks work at startups and that's cool. Uh, but that wasn't sort of the case for most of uh, India or even the world, right? So that was kind of definitive uh, as a moment for me in life. So that, that, that kind of bug bit me early on where like, hey, uh, that seems like something cool and something I want to do at some point in time. Uh, but I think uh, life leads you one direction and eventually you find yourself back. Uh, but went down the, uh, the standard route of any sort of engineering graduate uh, in India. So luckily found myself into one of the IITs. Uh, met a lot of uh, uh, sort of smart folks, realized uh, the world is much larger than I am. Uh, and there's a lot for me to learn from other folks. Uh, the idea is, again, uh, always sort of inspired from the movies or from the stories and, hey, let's drop out of IIT and then start up and stuff like that. that I didn't get even close to it. Uh, one, uh, didn't know what to do. The, the idea was just to quit as uh, sort of a dropout and start up, but not much else. Like uh, it wasn't sort of well thought out. Um, and the second was I couldn't find sort of folks who would, uh, who were crazy enough to sort of uh, do something similar, right? Uh, so made it through the IITs, uh, interned a few places, which increasingly started looking not like startups. So interned at uh, a, a bank called Goldman Sachs, eventually found myself into a job at McKinsey, um, where I worked with a lot of sort of conglomerates and uh, large-scale uh, Indian enterprises, right? But uh, was yearning for working with uh, young sort of companies uh, focused on technology and working sort of at the cutting or bleeding edge. Uh, and that's kind of how uh, uh, I found myself into the opportunity to work at Sequoia. It, it was early days for the VC ecosystem at that point in time. It wasn't as mainstream as today. Um, but luckily, found my way in. Uh, if you sort of said that, hey, if I interviewed for Sequoia uh, today uh, with the kind of uh, talent that's flowing in, I probably wouldn't make it. Uh, I, I didn't know what retail startups uh, looking back. Uh, I didn't know what business models looked like. I barely understood SaaS, to be honest. And uh, again, a series of lucky events. Um, that leads me to Sequoia. Uh, found myself uh, working with uh, the folks in the growth team, which essentially invests in, uh, let's say, Series B onwards companies. Uh, and there was a white space emerging, uh, which was SaaS. Uh, uh, we, we were early in the days of sort of the likes of Freshworks, just getting close to 100 million ERR uh, and crossing it. And we could see a lot of activity in uh, companies in the 5 to 10 million ERR range would likely uh, sort of graduate into similar scale, right? So that created the opportunity for late stage capital. Uh, and we started building that muscle out and I was just lucky to be involved um, in, in doing that. 
Uh, that's kind of where me and my co-founder Rishan, uh, who was in the early stage team at Sequoia, caught on to this trend of product-led growth. Uh, realized that most of the companies at scale uh, that looked interesting happened to be product-led, uh, not just in India, but uh, globally, right? The best companies in the world, the likes of Figma, Lube, uh, Canva, uh, Postman, and the likes are actually product-led because that model just scales well uh, and is highly capital efficient. The second thing we noticed is uh, post-COVID or sort of through COVID, uh, early, let's say 2021, um, uh, we, we noticed that most early stage founders were building for this motion. Um, so we had moved from a world where founders were essentially building for inbound marketing uh, led growth, where you essentially pay for ads uh, and get people through the product, give them a demo and sort of sell to them uh, to a world where they essentially ungated access to their product and provided their uh, services in a freemium manner. Right. Um, uh, and that's kind of the opportunity we picked up on where most of the late stage market looked great for PLG uh, and most of the early stage market was now defaulting to PLG. Um, so there's going to be a lot of companies coming up. Uh, over the next, let's say, two to five years, uh, which have at scale product led problems. Uh, and we are sort of um, uh, at top line, we essentially uh, let these companies or help these companies solve these problems, right? So that's kind of uh, been my, my journey. Uh, yeah, in short, it's just a, a set of lucky events that happened to conspire around me. Uh, I would say that I was not involved in most of it, uh, just, just sort of uh, laptop opportunities as they came along. No, no, so I think you're being very humble. Uh, first of all, because I think um, one of the great parts about being a part of both McKenzie and Sequoia is that you get to have a ringside view of all these bigger companies knowing what's happening and not just hearing from the news, but actually understanding the nitty gritties of how these businesses work. And probably that those kind of uh, those kind of learnings, you're sitting, you're day in and day out, you're basically reading numbers and you're seeing how these companies are operating. I think that gives you a great insight into you know how exactly to do you build a, a big business or how exactly does a business at scale operate so that that kind of i believe that you know any any consultant if they are good in operations if they're good in basic strategy can actually be a very very good founder majority of the people uh, majority of the consultants usually fail because of the operational issues which they usually cater to but from an inside perspective i don't think there is anybody else who can uh, you know, grasp onto a, an upcoming trend and latch onto it at the right time. Then, then, uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. The opportunity at, um, uh, especially at Sequoia, uh, was um, quite unparalleled. Uh, it, it, almost think of it as nearly exclusive access to the best founders in the ecosystem who sort of built scale companies. Uh, and you see how they sort of operate these companies, how they sort of hire talent, uh, how they think about sort of their product roadmap, how they think of the future four or five years down. Uh, and that massively sort of influences your own judgment um, as to what is possible and what is not, right? So uh, in short, uh, going into Sequoia and coming out, what changed for me was um, just my uh, understanding of what is possible and how large that is. Um, we, we sort of grew up um, uh, or spend a lot of time in India sort of thinking about, hey, how, how do we serve the Indian market? Uh, coming out of Sequoia, it was like, hey, we can build global companies as well. Uh, that was the biggest takeaway where we're not limited to the 1.4 billion people in the world, but more so the 7.5 plus billion people in the world, right? So uh, that was the largest takeaway, which is the scale of your ambition uh, and uh, uh, the belief in the possibilities that exist massively changes. Um, 
just because of the kind of folks you're exposed to uh, and uh, the, the the examples of success that you've seen. Um, uh, but yeah, that's the short two cents. Uh, that was my biggest takeaway from venture capital. Yeah, I think, you know, you are the culmination of the people that you hang around with. That shapes your judgment, that shapes your insights. So, uh, Rishin, two things probably, we'll probably start off with the whole idea of product-led growth. You know, a lot of people uh, who are building early stage, who are in the early stage of building SaaS products, many a times do not have clarity on the go-to-market. Uh, yeah. And I think product-led growth is one of those areas which a lot of people actually unwittingly do it, but they don't, since they don't understand how exactly, what are the best practices, how exactly to go about it, probably they they don't really, are not able to optimize for the right kind of growth and revenue. So first of all, want to touch a little bit about, uh, you know, SaaS companies in general and in general, you know, uh, what are the kind of trends in terms of the go-to-market that uh, a usual SaaS company has and what basically makes product-led growth uh, different, you know, a notch above the others? Yeah, uh, no, great question. Uh, And maybe we can actually uh, dial back about 20 years, right? Uh, Because it's really a journey to understand how the world is becoming product-led. We first need to understand uh, where the the world is coming from, right? Uh, So let's go back to sort of the early 2000s. Uh, we're sort of in the era of largely on-prem software and cloud is sort of coming up. Um, and sort of the motion at that point in time was essentially uh, sales teams whining and dining and eventually closing million dollar contracts. Uh, and if you're closing million dollar contracts, you have to sort of uh, focus on the top Fortune 500s or the top, uh, top sort of Fortune 1000 enterprises. And that was the motion for most SaaS companies, right? Um, now, uh, in, in such a world, the sales team was sort of uh, the central entity at most SaaS companies because that's the company that drove uh, revenue and the business forward. Uh, and a lot of tooling sort of came up around these companies. Uh, and the, the biggest example of that is Salesforce. Uh, so they essentially took the CRM and they put it up on the cloud uh, instead of on-prem. Uh, so 2000s was really the era of sales-led growth, uh, where sales teams, uh, based on their Rolodex, their relationships, and their network, uh, would essentially find customers and sell to them. And uh, because they're sort of highly paid sales teams, uh, they have to be closing sort of six, uh, six or seven figure deals, right? So large six figure um, and seven figure plus deals. Uh, and that was the sales led era. So you're looking at largely software that's being sold to CXOs uh, and VPs and the likes. Uh, but then in came sort of Google, uh, which sort of hit scale through the 2000s and 2010 uh, was becoming a monopoly of uh, of online search and intent. Uh, and SaaS businesses eventually found out that, hey, you don't need to serve the CXOs or the VPs. You can actually go mid-funnel uh, and go after the directors or sort of the senior developers and the likes. And the way you get to them is essentially by advertising against keywords they search for on search engines, right? Uh, and that was sort of the inbound marketing era, which followed in the 2010s, where uh, it's very simple what you would do. You would run an ad against, uh, let's say you're a help desk software Uh, People are searching for help desk softwares because demand already exists. Uh, So you put uh, sort of an ad against help desk uh, as a keyword uh, and then demand comes to you uh, and suddenly you're not sort of functioning uh, in a world of a few hundred leads like you would in the sales led world. You're now focused, you're sort of functioning in the world of a few thousand leads uh, every single month. Uh, And that created sort of the inbound marketing revolution on top of which HubSpot was built, right? Um, And the marketing team actually became very critical because that's the team that created the top of the funnel uh, for the sales team to then later uh, sell into. So the marketing team became the throttle uh, on growth. 
uh, and the sales team became the closer. Um, and the inbound marketing revolution created a lot of companies. There's the entire Martech stack that a lot of you who are familiar with SaaS might be uh, might be familiar with, which is tens of thousands of companies essentially serving marketers uh, as a persona. Uh, and that was the inbound marketing era, right? Which essentially sold into mid funnel. Uh, there was a demo. Uh, Post demo, the lead was sent into sales, and then sales went in and closed. And suddenly, you have like a ten or twenty or thirty thousand dollar contract. Um, but can you do better? Uh, and the answer is yes. Um, and that's kind of brings us into the 2020s, uh, into the product led era, uh, which is sort of, um, the world that we service, right. Where, uh, you're no longer as a business selling to a mid or a high sort of mid layer or sort of top tier, um, uh, person in the hierarchy, right. You're going after the, the employee who actually uses your product. Uh, so think about Postman. Postman does not service, uh, or go after the director of engineering or the VP of engineering or the CTO. Uh, the, the point of Postman is to go after the software developer who actually uses Postman to test APIs, right? The point of Canva is to go after the person actually creating designs. The point of Figma is to go after the person who's actually designing, which is a product designer. Uh, and software is no longer uh, sold to uh, sort of VPs and CXOs and corner offices uh, of ivory towers. It's now sold to um, sort of the folks in the trenches who are actually doing the real work. And that's where the product-led era comes in. Uh, where now you're not sort of dealing with a universe of a few thousand leads a month. You're dealing with millions and millions of users. Um, now, the moment you're dealing with a, a sample space of like a million users, uh, your software has to be hyper-consumerized, right? Because these are folks who are using Uber to get to work, uh, ordering food on a DoorDash or a Swiggy. Uh, and that's the experience you're used to. Uh, so uh, to, to sort of serve the product-led world, uh, you have to have a hyper-consumerized experience. Uh, which means it needs to be self-serve. Uh, you can't have a human in the loop. Uh, it has to be freemium so that folks can see value from your product before you sell it to them. Uh, and that's kind of the motion that these companies essentially uh, enable, right? Which is get people into the product, get them using it, show them some value and eventually sell to a small subsection of them uh, where the premium plan uh, might, might sort of serve, right? Uh, so that's the product-led world, which is it's no longer the marketer or the sales team uh, that is the throttle on your growth. Uh, your growth is driven by the product itself, um, right? In the adoption of it, the way you can sort of build virality or uh, virality loops into it, uh, the way you can sort of have referral loops running where you or I sort of invite our colleagues to use this product as well and so on. Um, so that's kind of the product-led world. Uh, I hope that makes sense. Hope that adds some value uh, or and happy to jump deeper into uh, what this world is. No, no, no. This is, this is absolutely, I think it's a very good... Um... Uh, you know, the trajectory that you've shown is basically the way things have gone. I have a few questions, which probably one, one more, one more level down that we can go. So when you're saying hyper consumerized, so are we looking at, looking at only the SaaS products, which are B2C or B2B2C, or are we looking at B2B companies as well? Because for example, Salesforce or a clever tap. Or, uh, or 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 uh, a Darwin box will still do a b2b sale yes. uh, and 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 probably a canva is still a b2c company because they have an individual as their end, end user uh, but for example charge b which is a product which is used by companies but still it is it's, it's the the overall product is more 
be more individual based so how do you categorize these companies yeah. then yeah absolutely great question uh, and the net net answer is all of these teams still exist so there's all there's still a there's still a b2b sales world there's still an enterprise sale being made at, uh, at some point in time it's just where you generate top of funnel right so in the sales led world sales was the team that generated top of funnel uh, through outbound network uh, rolodexes and so on in the marketing led world it was marketing team sort of that generated top of funnel and the way they did that is through paid marketing um, essentially uh, in the product led world it's just when we say it's product led that just means the product is the one, uh, is the entity uh, or the team that generates top of funnel and gets folks through now the way you convert them uh, or the way you actually monetize against them is actually a it's it's a cornucopia of multiple channels right so you have a sales team uh, who sort of goes after enterprise account so let's say Uh, you are figma uh, as an example right uh, and you have someone from netflix a product designer from netflix coming in the product's first job is to get this person to some form of value where they've designed something exported a design so on the second uh, but figma is essentially a collaboration software so the value is actually in collaborating so it's the product's job to then get this person to invite his or her colleague which is another designer or a third designer or fourth designer once you're at a critical mass you can actually make a sale to this person and you can do that through multiple ways you can have a mid market team going after them but given your uh, netflix uh, you can actually have an enterprise sales team actually go after them the only difference between the sales led or marketing led world and the product led world is that the sale is much quicker and much easier because your user has or sort of your buyer has fundamentally seen value from your product already um, so often these sales teams at these companies essentially just go in and close uh, there's no longer a need to make a sale or to sort of prove value uh, so product product led as a uh, product led growth as a uh, as as is essentially a lever for creating top of funnel how you convert that into bottom of funnel uh, is actually a bunch of things which are borrowed from sort of the older worlds of sales and marketing led growth right uh, that's kind of how we think about it so companies that use us essentially uh, work with a bunch of channels so let me take the example of datadog uh, at ipo a large chunk of datadog's revenue is actually self serve right uh if i'm not mistaken it was upwards of 60 or 70% of their revenue is essentially people putting their own card on file uh datadog is a infrastructure monitoring software uh so it's not as consumer as something like canva yet uh, most of their revenue is self serve however uh, over the last few years uh, in the public markets datadog now sort of uh, gets 60 or sort of 70 or 80% of their revenue uh, from enterprise sales um or sort of uh, uh, six or seven figure deals right uh, so the motion has kind of flipped essentially serving these massive enterprises uh, but the way these enterprises got into using datadog was actually at the uh, at the lower end of the spectrum where uh, someone from the developer team essentially started using datadog made it a, a viral entity within that team and eventually it was uh, sold into a larger contract right Uh, and what datadog has very brilliantly done through that process is that their cac is near zero uh, for any of these six or seven figure deals uh, and that's why product led growth is very interesting uh, it does not mean the death of a sales team or the death of a marketing team uh, it's just that these teams operate in much more efficient uh, and sort of um, uh, uh, capital efficient ways right uh, that's kind of where product led growth becomes beautiful got it so basically it's like sampling you know you basically yeah. you've already tried it out you know how it works now it's about all the all the top tier features that are required now you can't live without the product now your team has gotten used to using it now you can't do anything but to go in for the for the this exactly way. exactly the sale the sale has already been made uh the the, the sales team job is now to just close and if you see uh, sort of uh, product led companies and their counterparts 
um, which are not product-led, the sales cycles for product-led companies are significantly shorter, uh, where often these companies close like $50,000, $100,000 deals uh, in just weeks. Uh, versus sort of uh, it taking uh, other companies which are sales or marketing led several months, if not quarters, right? Um, because your ultimate buyer has already seen value from the product. They're locked into the uh, sort of uh, platform in and of itself. Um, and they've already worked out the ROI uh, because they've seen value. Uh, their teams are using it. They know how much sort of time they save or how much revenue they generate um, uh, through your particular product. And therefore, the sales, sale is already made. So it's, it's a much easier and more efficient motion. Um, it almost makes sense where why should you sort of get someone to pay you upfront? Uh, and then show them value later on. Isn't it much easier to just show value uh, and then charge whatever um, uh, you, you want at the end? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So, Ruchin, now that brings me to the question, what does Topline do and how does it do it? Yeah, uh, what we do is very simple. Um, so, if you consider a product-led company, um, the one thing they're very, very good at is acquisition of users uh, and customers, right? So uh, it's almost like acquisition is no longer a problem. Uh, acquisition is free. Uh, however, what product-led companies uh, sort of uh, really struggle with uh, is converting users into paid contracts uh, because these companies often have a 1% or 2% conversion rate, if not lower. Uh, so if you sort of just throw a dart at a board, uh, you're only going to hit it 1% or 2% uh, percent of times, right? Uh, so we at, at Topline essentially just help these companies, one, uh, figure out which of their millions of users are actually going to pay them. Uh, and I'll come to how we do that. But we essentially say that, of, okay, of your millions of users, these are the 10,000 that really matter. Uh, have your sales, marketing, customer success, et cetera, teams focus on these users. And the second is we help them orchestrate on their go-to-market strategy, right? Uh, so you can say that, okay, for the highest intent users, send the sales team after them. And we'll help them sort of move leads into Salesforce or HubSpot or where the sales team works. Um, you can say that, hey, if someone is on the fence and Topline will tell you that, hey, these are the set of users who are on the fence, maybe send them an email marketing campaign to get them warmed up and eventually send a sales team into them. Uh, so that's kind of what we do. One, we help figure out, we help uh, PLG companies figure out which of their users are going to pay. And the second is we actually help them increase their conversion rates by sending the right team after the right lead at the right time. Um, the way we do uh, uh, the first, uh, uh, which is identification of leads is uh, an unfair advantage most product-led companies have, uh, which is their users are already using the product, right? Like their, their potential customers are already using the product. And therefore I'm tracking every click, I'm tracking every time you move a mouse. Uh, and that is a massive leading indicator as to if you're going to convert or not. Uh, so essentially we train a bunch of uh, complex data science models uh, on a lot of click, cl click stream data. Uh, so data stored in an amplitude or a mix panel or in India, clever tap. Uh, and we essentially make predictions as to if someone's going to pay or not based on the usage uh, that they have shown within the product, right? So that's kind of uh, the, the short two cents. We help PLG companies monetize free user base. So, so you basically scour through the data and you figure out which one of the users or which segments of users are most likely to convert into premium users based right. on whatever historical data, whatever data already tells that this is the kind of user base. So you basically find a lookalike audience and then, exactly right. then expand and then expand and then expand. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Let's take the example of Zoom, which we're on right now. It's a PLG company. Um, now, Let's say that I largely work out of Slack or Slack huddles, right? And Zoom uh, is something I touch once a day, maybe for a meeting or two. 
but you uh, on the other hand derive a lot of value from zoom because you run uh, a podcast on zoom um, and uh, you might sort of have multiple touch points so your usage of zoom is going to look very different from my usage of zoom the number of people who attend your meetings will look very different and that's something that zoom tracks uh, the number of meetings you create and you're the host in will be very different than uh, than myself and therefore if you look at my product usage versus your product usage data it will be very clear uh, it will be chalk and cheese as to who's going to pay uh, uh, for zoom one day or another right uh, now it's a whole different question that i do pay for zoom but uh, uh, but but product usage data is sort of um, uh, a very strong indicator uh, as to if someone's going to convert or not it's almost like seeing them use the product and saying hey that seems like someone who's going to pay uh, yeah 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 wow so so when you people started less than 2 years back if i understand correctly june yeah it's been uh, uh, on june 1st it will be 1 year so we are just under 1 year uh, oh my god and you already have i mean you you have uh, can you name a few of the top clients that you are already working with yeah so uh, we're working with uh, uh, the likes of canva uh, which a few of you may be uh, familiar with uh grafana which some of you who are developers might be familiar with uh browser stack um uh, uh from 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 india and uh, it's essentially a cross geo browser testing company um we are also working uh, uh with gather town which is a series b c company uh, in the us uh, which primarily supports sort of a remote work use case right uh, and a few others so i, I can go on but uh, uh, canva browser stack and the likes are probably the more recognizable logos we yeah. work We also so, have a self-serve product coming out soon, so hopefully this list will uh, massively increase, and we will be product-led ourselves, uh, maybe in a quarter. I know, yeah. I think um, so. We have another event where we showcase newer features of Vega products. So, in case you're doing a launch, we would love to post that and see what the new feature looks like. Um, so, yeah. Um, coming back to uh, to the question. So, basically, less than one year old. uh you already have this is your second round that you're raising and with the likes of tiger global and sequoia already behind you it is kind of shows validation at least from you know from a credibility standpoint that hey you people are doing something right right uh, and and uh, i'm assuming that since you yourself are a saas company then then the growth trajectory is is going to be the hockey stick that everybody anticipates so currently uh, you pe- do you people have a plug and play model or do you basically have to send a team to you know kind of uh, onboard onboard the team onboard the comp- on- onboard your client and all yeah so uh, it's completely plug and play uh, this is something that uh, we decided day one where we will not do anything custom we will not have an implementation um, timeline and so on so uh, the only thing you need uh, to to do as a customer of ours is just give us access to your product analytics data uh, which is normally stored in something like a amplitude mix panel segment or clever tag uh, for us for you it's a simple sso login uh, or an api key share so you essentially just type in your username and password and then you're good to go uh, there's nothing else from your end um, and uh, uh, that's essentially where a lot of our ip is built uh, where we are able to set up um, this environment and this propensity uh, Uh, model for you without any intervention from your end so if you are a plg company uh, and you are someone who is sort of working on revenue or growth at one of these companies you don't need any engineering bandwidth from your end you don't need any sort of product data science bandwidth uh, everything is sort of uh, plug and play 
we have been doing this with a few enterprise customers early days just to uh, one prove to ourselves that uh, uh, a lot of this works uh, and also sort of um, uh, sort of make sure it works at scale uh, but uh, what we're most excited about is working with young companies such as ourselves um, and the only way you can do that is in a self-serve manner so you cannot have a, a implementation team or a time uh, or sort of humans going after uh, uh, customers and uh, onboarding them uh, so it was very clear to us from day one that this has to be plug and play and this has to be entirely self-serve um, and hopefully uh, uh, in a few days that will come to fruition where we'll start onboarding our first few self-serve customers. Uh, and then in a few months, it will just be completely uh, uh, free to use um, uh, and in general availability. So uh, one last question before I open it up for the audience and audience already have started using. And so guys, anybody of you want to ask questions, just raise your hand. We'll bring, on, bring you on, on the deck one by one. Uh, and please keep your videos on so that we can see you as well. So Rushen, um, you were a part of the search program right uh how was your experience like what were what were the key learnings and how do you think a search founder is uh, you know is is you know better uh, equipped to handle the market than than the others what is the unfair advantage that search provides yeah that's a great question uh, one, it was a great experience. So, of course, I was uh, pre previous to uh, starting Topline, I was at Sequoia. Uh, so, I'm a bit familiar with the search program uh, uh, sort of coming into it. Uh, but it was an amazing experience. And uh, there's a bunch of things that stand out. But uh, by and far, the largest thing that stands out is the access to other founders and other teams uh, that are sort of um, at the top of their game, right? Um, the second thing uh, uh, that stood out to me uh, was essentially uh, the amount of uh, learnings that you can have from folks not working on the same thing as you. So that does not need to be a SaaS company or a SaaS founder. It could be someone working in ed tech. Uh, but a lot of their learnings uh, from, let's say, building distribution uh, in ed tech could actually be very applicable to you. Um, like for us, content strategy and social media strategy has been a large proponent of our uh, uh, growth and sort of our inbound lead funnel, right? Um, and learning from uh, a few founders uh, at Surge as to how they sort of generate sort of millions in top of funnel when they're sort of dealing with um, uh, with edtech companies and students uh, was actually a, a, a massive unlock for us where we have taken away a lot in terms of how these teams run their content, how these teams um, uh, leverage it across platforms. So we essentially write content, but there's a there's a lot of mediums such as podcasts, which is audio, uh, video, and so on that we can actually expand our distribution base. Uh, but learning it from folks who are actually doing it um, uh, at scale and seeing real results uh, has been sort of uh, game changing for us. So for me, um, Surge is of course about a lot of competitive advantages you get uh, in terms of access to experts. Uh, access to folks who have been there, done that. Uh, but by and far, it's actually talking to the other founders who are uh, in a similar stage as you, where you can teach them something that you have learned um, uh, over the last six, few years, and they can teach you something that they've sort of figured out, right? So there's a lot of allied learnings uh, where uh, the game is not zero sum. Right? The game is massively positive sum. Um, if you know sort of uh, who, to talk with, uh, who to talk to and sort of what to ask them, right? Uh, so that was my takeaway from search. Yeah, it's a valid point. I, I believe as an entrepreneur, one of the biggest uh, issues is that, you know, I always say this, say this, that you don't have a boss. You know, you basically are on your own and you basically are, uh, you know, just fumbling through the dark trying to find the, the switch. 
and if there are people who have already found the switch it becomes easier for you to get the right directions otherwise you know you operate on a hypothesis uh, and then experimentation kind of a format and it saves a lot of time and money and headache <laughs> to to yeah, actually see, know uh, i couldn't agree more that's a great articulation it's something i learned at mckinsey where we essentially went into mckinsey as early analysts you're like 21 um and you are uh, essentially dealing with folks uh, in their uh, mid to late 40s and 50s uh, who have been there done that for a lot large period of time and trying to sort of essentially say that hey i'm going to teach you something new about your business and how to run it right uh, which is kind of a difficult sell so how, what do you really do uh, you tap into everyone else around you who's actually um, which is a plethora of knowledge uh, that already exists as to how to do something so the number one learning we were taught at mckinsey or something that we took away uh was that most problems have actually been solved uh and your uh, you as an individual don't need to resolve or sort of reinvent the wheel every time all you need to do is find the person who solved that problem and maybe uh, edit the edit the sort of solution to your own context because business context keeps changing uh but solutions uh, largely look similar um and uh, that applies to founders as well where if you are facing a problem it's highly unlikely no one else has sort of solved it before Uh, so your job should actually not be to reinvent the wheel with your team and waste a lot of bandwidth time and of course money uh, it should be to find the other teams that have actually solved this uh, uh, chat with them learn from them and maybe give something back as well uh, where i'm sure they're searching for problems that you've solved um, and that way everyone saves a bunch of time and better companies are built um, so yeah a lot of learn- learnings from uh, uh, past roles have sort of uh, worked in uh, which have really sort of uh, Help us um, in our early journey of founding com- a company, right? No, no, absolutely. So I think uh, you know, uh, uh, Shikhar has had his hands up, hand up for some time. Uh, Shikhar, I'll just bring you on. I have a bunch of other questions actually, so I just wait for in case there aren't any, I'll, I'll probably jump in. Hey, Shikhar, how's it going? Um, it's going it's going great uh, so uh, i had a quick question for uh, ruchin okay. sir uh, so i'm building a, a saas product for restaurants and street food vendors so i wanted to ask a question that uh, what what do investors see in a saas company and how hard it is to raise fund at an uh, idea stage yeah uh, no great question uh, one uh, what do investors look for um at least in early stage companies which are pre product it's primarily uh, the team uh, it's entirely based on the founding team uh, your previous experience in this particular market uh, which is actually very relevant in saas um so you need to have been there and really understand the pain points of this particular user or sort of customer that you're going after um so you need to have a differentiated insight uh, about let's say in this example restaurants uh, right so that's the first thing that an investor would look for the second would be sort of prior experience in building teams uh, prior experience in sales product and the likes uh, but I, i would say that pre product and early stage it's entirely on the founding team their credibility uh, and one or two unique insights that really separate you uh, from the rest of the market who who might be competing with you right so that's kind of what investors are looking for in terms of your second question about uh capital raising um uh, it completely depends uh, on frankly market cycles right um investors are not sort of uh, um uh, they're not above the market uh, the market sort of defines the tide and you move along with the tide uh, 
um, right? So uh, the pricing in the market, the valuations are something that the market commands and you decide whether you want to sort of partake or not. Uh, so if you, if you would ask me this question last year, uh, it was it was quite simple to raise um, for most companies. Um, and the capital was sort of uh, very freely available uh, with sort of the Fed printing a lot of money in the US and that money sort of flowing through to the rest of the world. Uh, but this year is a different case. Uh, 2022 is not 2021. Um, and it is a lot more difficult to raise capital. Um, and uh, that's good and bad. One, it's great that um, uh, sort of the, the companies that will get funded uh, would get funded on very strong principles and fundamentals. Uh, and therefore, better companies will be built through this year, I'm sure, uh, than sort of were um, uh, founded or uh, sort of uh, uh, funded last year. But the second is uh, uh, it's, it's significantly more difficult as a founding team to raise capital in this market. Uh, so it's going to be an uphill journey uh, uh, for many teams uh, in that way. Um, so investors follow the market when it comes to um, uh, uh, capital deployment. And I would say that 2022 is a difficult market. Uh, in general. So uh, that's my short two cents. I hope that answered your question. Happy to join. Yes, yes, yes. Really. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Shikhar, for asking it. Kamal has his hand up. Kamal, you can come in. Guys, anybody else has a question, just raise a hand. I'll pull you in. Uh, yeah, Kamal, go on. Yeah. Hey, Ruchin. Thanks for coming in on a Saturday morning. It was great listening to your slides. So I had two questions. You have a network so, issue. You guys can hear me, right? Hey, yeah. I think you're glitching in and out. I'm not exactly exactly able to hear. Yeah, yeah there is a lag from your side, Kamal. Hello, hello. Hello. Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. Please go on. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you. This is much better. Okay, Kamal is glitching. Okay. Kamal, you can just type type the question out, uh, and we'll we'll basically ask it to Ruchin, and Ruchin can probably answer. Uh, anybody else has a question? I'll I'll probably pull you guys in, or you can actually unmute and ask as well. Uh, if not, I have a few, and I'll probably ask. So, um, Ruchin, what do you think is the role of an advisor uh, in a startup? Because one of the one of the bigger policies and a lot of people look for mentorship so to speak um, and it's a very it's a very weird conundrum that uh, you know mentor there are you can't basically find a mentor formally you know yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a very uh, what do you call it individualistic kind of an approach when it comes to mentorship and also finding the right people not every person might be the right mentor for you or for your for your startup i wanted to take your take on it and also understand the role and who are the advisors that you people have and how are they adding value to your journey yeah absolutely uh, so to me the role of an advisor is pretty clear uh, as a founding team most of your time goes into actually building the business so you are uh, uh, so, I mean, uh, maybe at a later stage, it changes and you're a little sort of removed from the business where you can think at a more macro level. Uh, but in the early stages, you're essentially deep into the business, right? Uh, where your contact with the outside world is limited. Uh, 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 so you, uh, as an advisor, uh, I think uh, there's two jobs that you have. One, um, staying in touch with what is the what is external to this particular company um, in the current market. So, 
let's say that, hey, what is the fundraising environment looking like? Uh, what are competitors doing? Uh, where is sort of the market moving for us in, as an example in terms of product-led growth? So basically, what is the state of the market outside of this particular company that you're advising? Right? That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, because founders don't have enough time to sort of really sit and think ahead and inform themselves, um, your, your job as an advisor is to figure out where the puck is going to be uh, one to five years from today uh, and advise the, the founders or sort of just provide them this insight that, hey, this is where I think the world is moving. Um, right. And the founder can then sort of, I'm sure many founders already have a guess of uh, where the world is moving, but to hear it from a secondary source uh, is kind of validation um, and they can sort of seek this advice from multiple folks. Right. So uh, to me, an advisor is very simple. Uh, what is the market looking like outside of sort of the bounds or the uh, sort of walls of this particular company that you're advising? And second, where is the puck going to be a few years from now? Uh, that's really the job. Everything else. Uh, uh, frankly, uh, teams at companies should be better than uh, you at sort of doing right uh, because they're sort of building the business. Uh, but uh, you can sort of uh, um, be sort of the be all and end all of everything outside of this particular business. Um, yeah, uh, the second question uh, you asked is who we look at in terms of advisors. There are a bunch of folks, uh, all of our investors who we have known from our time in Sequoia have been super helpful, right? So uh, anyone like Rajan or uh, Shailendra Ashish. Uh, Tejashri or TJ from uh, Sequoia. These are folks we have worked with in the past uh, and who we find ourselves uh, going back to at all points in time. Um, uh, made be decisions as to, uh, uh, it may be business decisions in terms of product, but also uh, in terms of sales, marketing, uh, but also in terms of capital raising and so on. Um, we have also find, found our way into a few advisors through uh, the route of our customers, right? Uh, so one of the few folks who has been really helpful is uh, um, is uh, uh, now the head of revenue at Canva. Uh, his name is David Burson. Uh, so he has been super helpful in just helping us understand how PLG teams operate. Um, and uh, also uh, uh, in terms of um, really nailing down our ICP when we should be hiring for certain positions versus not. Uh, so we've actually found a lot of uh, support in the ecosystem of customers that we serve. Uh, but Dave is a, a shining example of that. Interesting. Thanks a lot for that question. And in case nobody else has a question, I'll ask my next one. Um, guys, if you have a question, just raise your hand. Kamal has again raised, raised his hand. Udit is also here. Udit, finally, while, when we are just planning to close, you've just dropped in. Kamal? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I was just wrapping up a client uh, meeting, so it got it just got over. Are, are, are. It, we had such a vibrant discussion about SaaS. So, uh, Ruchin, Udit is the co-founder of Pitchground. Uh, they basically uh, help launch SaaS companies, uh, and they do in they do it they do it day in and day out. So I actually had invited him for uh, you know adding onto the discussion on product and growth because he also is a great proponent of the same and knows a lot of stuff. So Odit, uh, in case you wanna want to ask a question or have a discussion, just wait. Kamal has a question, and then I'll just pull you in as well. Okay, yeah, sure. Kamal. Yeah. Can you speak can I, now? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I can. I can. Please go. I guess ahead. it's probably the video bit. Okay. So I, I no, issues, no issues. No issues. Please go on. Yeah. So basically, I understood, Rujin. Like, first of all, thank you for you know coming on this Saturday morning. It was a great discussion. So I just wanted to understand that. Okay, I understood that you guys help companies in the PLG stage. Okay. So I just wanted to understand the first question was how do you guys you know go for a revenue model like you know is it a subscription base or you go per lead or you know is there a credit based system 
And the second question, what I want to ask, like, you know, uh, so let's say a company as a, as a SaaS company building an early stage product, right? No, at the early stage, maybe they could incorporate top line, you know, as you progress in the journey, like, you know, product might change a little bit, right? You know, there's always been like, you know, iterations happening continuously, right? So how does top line, you know, kind of incorporate this kind of changes in their, like, you know, in the model of, like, you know, generating the leads and conversion rates? Yeah. Thank you. Great question. So maybe I'll answer the second one first. Uh, as a business scales, products change all the time. Frankly, uh, there's usually pull requests every single day, right? So there's some usage that changes every day based on things you put out there. Um, uh, so in terms of how we adapt to that, uh, we essentially run real-time data streams into ourselves. Uh, and the models or sort of the propensity models we train in the, in the background are retrained at a very regular basis, right? Uh, so it's not every day because you don't want things changing every day in your business, but at a weekly level, uh, we sort of retrain a lot of um, uh, the data science models we built in the background. Uh, so as the usage of your customers changes or the way they interact with different features changes, uh, our sort of um, predictions as to how they convert also change. So that's kind of how we adapt to um, massive sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, not massive, but incremental increases in product, right? Um, to answer your first question about pricing, uh, we, we price based on a usage-based model. Uh, now, we're an early-stage company, and pricing is something you figure out over a period of time. So I wouldn't be surprised if our pricing model changes or sort of is different for different scales of usage. Uh, but for our, for our early customers who are largely sort of, let's say, CDC onwards, uh, uh, SaaS companies operating at scale, uh, it's based on usage. Um, so the more top of funnel you generate, uh, uh, the more you uh, sort of our contract grows with you and so on. So we grow along with your business. Um, and uh, eventually we want to get to a point where uh, we charge as a percentage of revenue uplift that we generate. Uh, right now, it's uh, attribution is always a problem when it comes to something like this. So it's a much more difficult problem to solve than most people think. But we want to get to a world uh, eventually where uh, we charge as a basis of uplift we generate and therefore our incentives are entirely aligned uh, where hey, we help you grow revenue and therefore um, uh, we get paid on that basis. But as of now, it, it's based on usage, which is the number of net new users you get every single month, right? Yeah. All right, got it. Thank you. Thanks uh, Ruchil. a lot. Hi, Ruchil Anshul here. How are you? Hey, Anshul. I'm bringing you in. I just tell me one thing, just curious to know whether you also tell poor data the buying behavior, basically, like if you are on a grocery app, so generally what kind of products are, are bought by the consumer or, or it is only at the start point you t uh, tell the behavior. Yeah, uh, it'd be great if you could repeat that. I wasn't able to understand. So you're like, saying like if you are on a grocery app, so you, you also give the insights that what what is the buying behavior what what will be the future buying behavior like if somebody is buying certain products and uh, for, for a certain period of time so whether whether you also give that insights also yeah so uh, let me uh, contextualize this for the case of saas because we only serve saas companies as of today so okay. it's not sort of your uh, b2c grocery deliveries or sort of food deliveries and so on right um, we'll maybe eventually get to that world where which has this very similar sales motion frankly as saas but for now, we are limited to SaaS companies. Uh, in SaaS companies, most uh, sort of tiering is very simple, uh, where you either buy a pro, premium, or XYZ product, right? And there can be variants of that, but that's kind of it. Uh, yes, we, in terms of predictive, yes. So we would say that, hey, uh, most people are sort of the strongest indicator to you paying or sort of buying the pro plan from me one day is the fact that you viewed my pricing page. 
uh, or the fact that you toggled from monthly to annual on the pricing page, or the fact that you invited a colleague, or the fact that you left a comment and so on. Um, so you could, most businesses track sort of hundreds and hundreds of parameters, uh, hundreds and hundreds of actions that you can take uh, within a product. And then we stack rank them and provide insights uh, to these SaaS companies as to what really matters versus what doesn't, uh, and what is really a leading indicator to someone converting. Uh, their teams can then work backwards from there uh, and sort of build segments and cohorts and say that, okay, uh, my sales team should only focus on someone who has viewed the pricing page, or my sales team should only focus on someone who has invited at least five colleagues because they've really experienced value from the product, right? Uh, but but yeah, that's kind of the world we operate in, which is primarily product-led SaaS companies um, and not sort of B2C companies. So, so basically, Roshan, what I think Anshu was trying to get at is, do you just help them to convert from premium to paid or also help in upselling yeah. opportunities? Absolutely. Uh, uh, we do as well. So uh, many of our customers actually don't just use us for free to paid, but actually a lot more, right? Uh, so as an example, uh, Canva actually, uh, uh, the, the use case Canva has with us is actually to increase team size. Um, so that's really where most product-led companies make the big bucks. Uh, which is when people start using uh, the product in terms of teams and so on. And that's where pricing really blows up, right? Uh, so there's massive incentive in growing team sizes and therefore we help them figure out which teams are likely to grow in size. Um, for uh, other dev tools companies that we serve, we often help them figure out who on the open source product is most likely to buy sort of the cloud, uh, cloud hosted product and so on. Uh, so the outcome is rather irrelevant uh, for us. We essentially help you monetize your users that could be from free to paid or that could be paid to pay more. Um, uh, we, we support all of those goals. I'm and sure. what about, and what about customer churning? Yeah. So, uh, we primarily serve growth teams at PLG companies. Uh, so if you look at a growth team within a product led company, they have two large criteria, uh, or they have two KPIs that they need to hit every particular year. One is self-serve annual recurring revenue. So they carry the target for self-serve ARR, um, right? So we help them meet that target of self-serve ARR. The second is sales-assisted ARR. So they need to qualify pipeline for sales teams to go up against. Uh, so we largely, or sort of our customers are largely focused on monetization uh, and less on churn prevention, which is usually something the customer success team uh, at these companies uh, essentially works on. Uh, we have a couple of customers using us for churn prevention or uh, retention, but that's not the primary use case of our platform. Right? Our primary use case is in monetization, uh, which is uh, what sort of growth teams of these companies are most excited by. Okay, okay, got it. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Anshul. Um, so I guess uh, I have a few more questions. I'll take probably take one or two if you have the time, Roshan. Yep. Odet, if you if you want to jump in at any given point of time, just raise a hand. We'll pull you in. Uh, because you know any discussion in the builders club usually <laughs> you know we always get an insight from our very own uh, Udit. Udit, please come in i think you can unmute yeah uh, Chen. Uh, good to meet you good to meet you uh, so one of the things i've seen with topline i was going through the website uh, looks a uh, very interesting product uh, but what I've observed is it's mostly used by uh, most of the companies that are providing like freemium sort of a model where they're trying to figure out a lot of free users and how to turn them into a paid customer, right? Yeah. So is that like your core focus on like, and have you guys worked with like any sort of marketplaces by any chances of now? 
So because because we because I run pitch, so I run currently two brands. One is uh, Pitch Ground, which is a SaaS marketplace where we primarily focus on early stage companies to get them traction. Right. Our focus is not on uh, companies that have already gotten a ton of revenue. So that's not our goal. So it's usually the early stage company that are really struggling, and that's where ninety two percent of the companies really tank out in within the three years. So that's our first goal, right? So we're trying to figure out like a way to kind of like uh, build upsells and everything within the marketplaces. Uh, we were thinking to build a tool like yours internally, by the way, uh, this this year, right? To to start uh, tracking different analytics using a mixed panel. And then based on the data that we have collected, we would pull in that data and then start building up different upsells and everything and build up a campaign sort of a feature. But if you guys have built it, saves us about a good uh, three to five months of development time. So we wanted to understand whether it would, it's going to work out for marketplaces. My second uh, question is, uh, we uh, we have just launched a new product known as First Sales, which is a which is a very advanced and modern email outreaching tool. Uh, where we're trying to build a bridge between the cold emails and cold uh, and hot prospects, right? So yeah. in this case as well, right now we are not doing any freemium. We don't plan to do any freemium. We are just purely charging people on subscription basis. So in this case, we are providing all the features to everyone. Um, this is the differentiation that we also want to have, and we're just charging people on the basis of user accounts. So how can you also help us out with regards to that as well? Uh, with regards to maybe upselling them to our uh, uh, more plan because for us, for us, our our revenue is being generated uh, based on the user, uh, the number of team members that they onboard, basically. So those are basically my two questions. No, great questions. Uh, uh, as of today, you'd see that me or the logos up on our website are largely premium SaaS companies, right? Uh, having said that, I think that is from the world where uh, the reason that is is when we started Topline like eleven months back. Uh, that's the world we understood and that's the world we targeted right uh, where we were sort of uh, three folks who had deeply worked in SaaS either in investing or in operating capacity uh, and that's the world we sort of knew that this problem statement existed in uh, we had an inkling or an understanding that this problem state the same problem statement might uh, actually hold true for a, a marketplace or a b2c edtech company or a fintech trying to cross sell products uh, but that was sort of uh, just something that hey, we were hypothesizing uh, what has followed is actually something very interesting. Half of our in inbound is actually from non-SaaS companies uh, who essentially have the same problem statement that you described. Uh, now, early days uh, uh, at a startup is all about staying focused and solving a problem very deeply for a very particular persona. And that's kind of what year one looked like for us, right? Where we want to make sure that someone like Canva, Grafana, Browser Stack, Gather Town, and so on gets value out of what we're building because there's a repetitive motion that we can build on the back of that because there are a lot of other companies that we know already exist and face the same problem. Uh, but as we go live with our self-serve product, now that, that gate kind of uh, uh, sort of opens up where anyone with this problem statement, which is, hey, I have a lot of users or I have a lot of accounts and I don't know who to cross-sell or upsell to, and I need some analytics and I need uh, uh, integrations into Mixpanel and Salesforce as an example uh, to make it work. Anyone with the, that problem statement can use our product uh, in the next few months, right? Uh, so to, uh, to, cut your, uh, to sort of um, uh, cut a long answer short or answer your first question, yes, uh, we will be able to sort of solve that problem for you and and cut the cut down the the time that it take to build it from three to five months to just a, a few hours, right? Uh, so that's the first question. Where as long as you're you're serving an objective goal, which is in your case cross sell, uh, and you have product usage data to back that goal, which and you have product usage data in mix panel that can actually help pre predict the outcome, uh, we can serve you. Um, so those are the two precursors. Uh, the second question uh, you had was around uh, sort of um, uh, you, you have a you have a product which is not premium yet, 
but you are trying to sort of grow team sizes um, uh, and you want to do that through sort of uh, cold outbound email sequences to uh, hot users or hot sort of teams, right? No, no. So our tool itself, what it allows you oh, to do, is, yeah, it lets you do outbound. So let's say if Topline wants to grow and uh, start reaching out, right? They can use our tool and sort of uh, reach out to maybe let's say uh, ten thousand SaaS companies and pitch them and get that hot prospects and then move it right. to the CRM, right? So we are we are that initial bridge between that cold email data that you have and and turning that into a hot prospect, basically. Got it. Got it. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, so here's where top line actually comes or is useful to a company. It's when you, you have too much of a top of funnel, um, and you don't have enough sales capacity or you don't have enough, uh, downstream capacity to meet that top of funnel. Uh, but what, is so of, what is this kind of a data size that you would initially require before top line really comes into picture? So let's yeah, say hundred customers, 200 customers, like, like so on. Yeah, uh, we say it's around 150, 200 paying customers uh, on a top of funnel of a few thousand, right? Uh, so you've seen a top of funnel of thousand and then a few hundred people are paying you. Uh, at that point in time, it makes sense to use data science uh, because data science does not work at low scale. In fact, it's worse than throwing darts at a board uh, sometimes, right? Uh, so the product that we'll release uh, for very small scale companies will not have data science. It will just have statistical measures uh, for figuring out who's going to pay because data science does not work at low scale. It just does not. Um, so the, the threshold that we essentially recommend to folks who are coming in is a few hundred customers uh, who have paying you and have sort of paid you through the past uh, and a few thousand in the top of funnel, right? Where uh, And the reason we say a few thousand in the top of funnel is now it starts looking like a prioritization problem. If uh, you have a hundred paying customers and a few, like just the double, uh, like you have, let's say you have a hundred paying customers and 200 have come through a top of funnel. Uh, I would not recommend using top line uh, because you do not have a prioritization problem and you should probably reach out to everyone and have a chat with everyone, right? Uh, where top line becomes useful is when you have a prioritization problem and there's a clear grade of sort of users who are most likely to convert and folks who really uh, have not seen value from the product, right? So that's kind of, does that help? Uh, that's kind of the threshold that I would draw. And I have one last question with regards to this. So what I've seen based on the screenshot and the information provided so far, right? Uh, what I'm only seeing is uh, uh, ability to push like a discount code. So is this more like a, a trying to push a discount and try to uh, buy, make people buy more? <laughs> because that's what I'm seeing based on, that's what the copies and everything is, is saying on the website at the moment. So I was a little confused uh, how that would work out. No, that's firstly great feedback for me uh, because that's not the uh, the primary use case. Uh, people use us for multiple go-to-market motions. So let's say you're a PLG company, you have a free user, you need to convert this user into paid. Uh, or you have a team and you need to convert uh, or you, you need to grow the size of the team. There's a few weapons at your disposal, right? Uh, weapon number one, which is kind of blunt and you can't send after everyone is a sales team. Uh, so the first thing we help companies do is send the most or highest qualified leads into their Salesforce, HubSpot, Pipedrive, whatever CRM they're using. Uh, so that's use case number one. Uh, now there's a few other ways you can sort of convert folks uh, who are very high intent. Uh, one of them could be sort of a user engagement tool like Braze, right? Uh, and the way you use Braze is uh, you essentially show a nudge within the product or you sort of try to, and one of those nudges could be a promo, uh, which is like a 10% discount, but a nudge can look what, uh, 
a nudge can look like anything, right? It could be that, hey, why don't you try out this feature instead? Uh, because you think that this person will derive some value from that feature and eventually will pay you. Uh, so the second uh, go-to-market motion we help companies with, and this is for um, this is sort of folks like Canva and Grafana using us is uh, for in-product nudges. Uh, the nudge can just look like a promo, but it doesn't need to. Uh, the third could be an email sequence, right? Which is uh, for everyone on the fence, you want to send them an email sequence and give them sort of informational content, or if you want to invite them to a webinar or, um, or any other sort of um, uh, motion that you want to sort of, or, or any other communication you want to send out to your users where uh, they can move from being a warm to a hot lead. Uh, that's a third kind of go-to-market motion we support for our customers and the list goes on. Um, so is it sort of just discounts and promos? Not really. So is it more like that product or kind of a product where there are different sort of features out there for product or and segmentation and you segment the audience and then just uh, either trigger some sort of a pop-up or uh, or some sort of a sequence. So it's kind of like what I'm feeling is this is some, some sort of a partial uh, intercom sort of a... Uh, yeah, so, right yeah actually none of, the, none of the platforms where go-to-market actions are taken are something that's controlled by us. Uh, let me step back and uh, and say more about what growth teams at PLG companies globally do, right? Uh, the growth team at a PLG company uh, is the team that is tasked with revenue uh, and uh, uses the levers of marketing, sales, product, and the likes to influence that revenue, right? Uh, and what does what does influencing sales look like? It's basically what goes into Salesforce. That is what me as a growth guy can do uh, at one of these companies. What goes into Braze? Which kind of users go through a particular campaign? Uh, who gets a product walkthrough? Uh, who gets an email marketing sequence? Uh, so we, you can think of us as a decisioning platform, uh, which sits along with the growth team, where they can sort of decision as to who or which user goes through which channel. We are none of these channels on our own, uh, which is why I keep saying that, hey, push your hottest leads to Salesforce, because we are not your CRM. Or push your hottest, uh, or push your warm leads into Braze because we are not your in-product nudge platform. We are not your chatbot like Intercom and so on, right? We are just, we're just the glue that sort of, uh, sort of just, uh, it's the spider web that sort of brings together your go-to-market. Kind of like segment. Yeah. Yes, like yes. Think of it as, uh, th yeah. Think of it as an intelligent segment meant, right. purposefully made for sort of growth teams to influence revenue. Uh, that, that's probably a great articulation of it. Thank you so much, uh, Rachin. I really, I really appreciate it. Maybe you might want to get in touch with you. Uh, yeah, it would be great to uh, connect offline. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I'll make the connect. Don't worry. <laughs> Chala, thanks a lot, Udit, for that. So Udit is one of our, uh, one of our, um, you know, OG builders within the club. He runs his own SaaS marketplace. So I really wanted him to be here right from the beginning, but. Whatever, whatever time that Udit could spare. Thanks a lot for that. Usually has a grilling kind of a <laughs> this thing, but that actually helps. Uh, so yeah, Ruchin, I think uh, one last question and then probably we can close. Uh, you have been an investor yourself. Now you're a founder. Um, people are saying that the, that winter is coming in the VC ecosystem. How do you see it? And uh, how do you see it playing out? Because you have seen these cycles before, and this seems to be another one of them. What do you think? Yeah, I'm completely in agreement. Uh, times don't look good. Uh, it's going to get tough. Um, there's a very, very high likelihood uh, that the US goes into recession this year, uh, and then the rest of the world follows. Uh, that would be my guess. Uh, I'm ho I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, capital availability is limited. 
the Fed will likely increase interest rates several times this year, and uh, and any one percent increase in interest rate normally creates a significantly larger uh, reduction in asset prices across the board, right? Especially in growth stage equities. Um, so all of that is going to filter down into the VC market. It's going to be tougher um, for tools that are. Uh, nice to haves versus uh, infra something like infrastructure churn will increase. You'll have to work along with customers to limit churn. So that's kind of how it would look like for a SaaS company. Uh, but all is not doom and gloom uh, because these cycles just go, the world sees these cycles every ten or fifteen years, uh, and we come out of it every time. Uh, and uh, the world is healthier post, right? Uh, so I, I would say that. Uh, it's it's often at the at the height of a bull bull sort of bull cycle you always think that hey everything looks great and it does not because a bear cycle is coming and at the sort of bottom of a bear cycle everything looks like it's uh it's going to be terrible for a long time but uh sort of the horizon is uh, right around the corner so i would say that don't fret uh, as as a founder your job is to one survive uh, at the bare minimum through the bear cycle uh, and second set yourself up to thrive at the end of it or through um, right, which means conserve capital. Um, don't make um, don't make obscene bets, uh, or don't make uh, obscene bets on burn and marketing and so on. Uh, survive and thrive, and make sure that your customers uh, are better off uh, uh, using you versus not. Um, and things will look good on the other end of it. Now it's uh, it's tough to say when the markets come back. Uh, that's anyone's guess, and I, I wouldn't pretend to know that, but. Uh, uh, my two cents would be that the world is going to probably get a little tougher, uh, but better companies are born through these cycles. So if yeah. you look at 2001, uh, what we got out of that was the likes of a Google or an Amazon, right? And they became sort of the trillion dollar businesses uh, of our world today. Um, even through 2008, a lot of um, uh, very interesting fintech companies were born out of that crisis, right? Um, and uh, the same would apply with this as well. I'm sure a lot of uh, uh, super high quality companies will be born through this market, would build businesses based on fundamentals and uh, will build quality businesses, which can sort of scale and be profitable yeah. and so on. So I, I would focus on that and not much else. So one bare minimum is survive. Uh, and uh, and the second is set yourself up to thrive. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Thanks Just a lot. Yeah, please. One small question. Like, what are your thoughts on the Sequoia's uh, recession report? <laughs> uh, uh, so I'm still going through most of it. I've, I've gone through, let's say, 75%. That was actually my plan this weekend. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm going to be jumping into right after this call. Uh, but the one thing I can say about Sequoia is that they've seen cycles over and over again. So you're not going to get an investor who has seen as much as Sequoia has. And when they write about something with that high an intent, uh, they really mean it. Uh, and they're most likely correct. Uh, so... Uh, uh, I would, uh, so, so someone who's seen this market move and shift for 50 years and uh, seen fortunes be made and fortunes be lost uh, is probably the entity you want to go to, uh, to understand what sort of the world is moving towards, right? So um, I would largely be in agreement uh, with the report. Uh, the reason I say largely is because I haven't read all of it yet, but of what I've read, I've, 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 I've sort of sent it to my team, uh, told everyone to read it, internalize it, uh, and uh, really work backwards from there, right? Uh, because this is the reality of the world that we live in is what they're sort of talking about. Um, uh, and it's best to prepare uh, for the worst uh, than to assume that things are going to be great and then find yourself in a terrible position. Because as founders, you are responsible uh, to a few entities, right? One, your customers, uh, to your employees who sort of uh, build livelihoods off of you. 
and uh, and uh, three of course your investors as well and uh, as founders it's your job to take care of these three entities and make sure that their interests are protected uh, through this and just because of sort of um, uh, uh, reading the market incorrectly and sort of investing in things you shouldn't uh, if you're going to impact any of these three entities uh, uh, that's kind of on you um, so I would say that um, uh, uh, for anyone reading I would say 100% read the report um, you can choose to internalize uh, what makes most sense to you what does not add up maybe do, do not but uh, by and large I agree with it uh, that's probably the uh, the market we live in right so the craziness of 2020 and 2021 uh, despite a pandemic uh, 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 existing uh, just the craziness of the market is probably now going to be in stark contrast to what we see over the next uh, maybe a few quarters in years I, I don't know what uh, I hope it's just a few quarters I also hope it's just a few quarters, but it seems to like it'll be a little bit longer than that. <laughs> uh, thanks a lot, Udit, for that question. I have one last question. I have a very bad habit of this. I'm really sorry, Richard, but the more I talk with you, I think there are so much, so many more topics that we should talk about. One small thing, uh, and then we'll call it a, we'll, we'll draw it to a close. What do you, what are your take on the, on the crypto market? right now and in general the crypto the crypto ecosystem which is bustling because i think very close to how us you know it's it's technically SaaS, right i mean a majority of the products which are there are are basically software as a service albeit with a different kind of a backend what are you, what is your take on that yeah so number one i'd say i'm not an expert in this by by a margin i spend 25 hours a day thinking about SaaS uh, and sort of businesses built on the cloud. So that's where all of my time goes. Uh, so take anything I say with a pinch of salt. Um, but I have a very similar prediction in the crypto markets as the rest of the markets. Like if you look at 2001, um, there was a lot of um, uh, over exuberance in the market in terms of what got funded uh, uh, versus what use cases they actually sort of create, like what value they created, right? Uh, but uh, there were very, very high quality companies that were actually building high quality businesses in that same market. So uh, again, the examples that come up are Google and Amazon, right? Uh, super high quality companies really like really served a very pointed use case, like where a consumer got value out of them. So I would say that from the outside, I'm not deep into this. So again, take my words with a pinch of salt. Uh, I'm sure the similar um, uh, something similar would play out in the crypto markets where uh, I'm sure the next trillion dollar opportunity is in there somewhere. Uh, it's probably hard to figure out which one it is. And there are, uh, at least from uh, folks I know, there are a lot of quality individuals and quality talent building in this space. So I'm sure something will come off of it. It's it's just that the amount of noise that has been created uh, by uh, sort of the over exuberant capital inflow uh, makes it very difficult to figure out what is sort of chalk versus cheese, right? Um, so my, my prediction would be that something of tremendous value would come out of it. Um, I do not have the expertise to say what it is. Uh, but I hope to figure that out over 10 years uh, when yeah. we the next trillion dollar uh, sort of uh, crypto or web three company, right? Yeah, I'm sure yeah. that and it would have come out of this um, uh, period in history, right? Yeah. Uh, but I'm not the guy uh, who, who's going to know what, what that is. Which is fine, which is fine. So a lot of people are saying that while the VC ecosystem is drying, the crypto VC ecosystem might actually thrive at this point in time. What do you think? Because a lot of money has is being pumped in there while the the traditional VC ecosystem might actually go into a kind of a downward spiral. Uh, again, your guess is as good as mine. 
but uh, i would say many of these ecosystems in terms of capital um, so all of the all of these ecosystems are frankly tied um, at the hip um, so public markets are tied at the hip today with uh, private markets that was not as much the case 10 or 20 years ago um, but uh, the feedback between each of these ecosystems is uh, very fast and the linkages between each of these ecosystems is very high today um, so if i was a founder uh building in sort of the crypto ecosystem or the web3 ecosystem i would assume or i would i would have the same set of assumptions that someone building in saas or fintech or or um, edtech and so on would make right uh, capital availability is likely going to be look very similar um as mm. these ecosystem sure there could be a lag uh, there could be a sort of a lag or lag or a lead uh, but all of these ecosystems are tied at the hip ultimately uh, the way markets think about it there's growth equities and then there's debt equities um if interest rates rise things move out of growth equities and into safer havens right uh, and for all intents and purposes the way uh, lps and limited partners and uh, and the likes think about any of these assets they are all growth equity assets for them um right uh, which are basically which basically thrive in an environment of near zero interest rates but if mm-hmm. interest rates are much higher you would rather park your money in much safer bets uh which are going to uh, which are basically uh, so i would say all of these are tied if i was a if i was advising a, a crypto founder make the same set of assumptions that any other founder in the ecosystem would make uh, build a quality business uh, focus on uh, fundamentals uh, uh, don't burn ridiculous amounts of capital and and uh, uh, build a build a business right uh, with profit margins and the likes that would be my focus yeah 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 and with that rochin i think we can draw the podcast to a close thanks a lot for your time how was your experience rochin of- oh, I, uh, i had a great time a great way to start a saturday and uh, uh, really appreciate all the conversations and uh, and and the questions uh, so i had a great time thanks for having me thanks a lot rochin for your time i'll connect uh, with the new i think you guys can talk business um and and uh, all the best for your future you recently had your first uh, hopefully uh, you will have your next raise soon as well because i think as you rightly pointed out uh, good businesses will always get funded you know so irrespective of how the market is going at least if you if your foundations are solid if you if if you operate by the first principles i don't think there should be an issue god speed roshan thanks a lot for taking time out uh and uh, and we'll see you guys again uh thanks a lot uh, for all of you guys who joined in and who stuck by we usually say it's one hour it usually ends up being one and a half hour so all of the people here are used to that so uh we'll release the podcast for this uh, very very soon hopefully by next week the audio version will be out the video might take a little bit time but we'll share the links with you and it'll be a pleasure if you can share your experience uh about the builders club uh, with with the, with the others in your network as well that will be really grateful thanks a lot rochin for your time i think guys we can just end it here uh, you guys anybody wants to say any last words to rochin uh, somebody has just said great work thanks a lot great session it okay. was a great session and uh, it was really great session and all the best for the future thanks thanks shikhar and all the best to you as well Cool guys, we'll just end it here, and uh, Bruchin, we'll see you guys. You will see you again. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Nice bye. Bye. Bye.
that was the episode. Hope you got some rich insights for your idea from this. If you like the episode, do share it with your friends and rate us on Spotify, Google Store and iTunes. If you want to join the Water Cooler Podcast live, join the club at www.thebuildersclub.me. Until next time, upwards and onwards.